1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast, and I have John Ho. Uh, he joined the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the National University of Singapore as an assistant professor in 2013, and he got his PhD under the supervision of Professor Ada Poon at Stanford. He was a National Defense Science and Engineering Graduate Fellow, and his PhD thesis uh, focused on wireless power transfer to small-scale scale bioelectronic devices. We have been talking about his current research, and uh, John, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm
2: calling in from Singapore.
1: Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, thanks for calling in from so far away.
2: <laughs> so thanks um, <laughs>
1: for yeah. yeah. So, tell me, um,
2: what's what's your research about now? What are you working on? Yeah, so uh, generally I work in the field of bioelectronics. I'm interested in applying electronic devices uh, to diagnose or treat diseases, and the reason that sort of makes sense um, if you think about maybe the very first bioelectronic device that would be a pacemaker. And I think mo- most people know what a pacemaker is—a device that can go to your heart and basically uh, uh, solve cardiac arrhythmia. We can make the heart beat at the proper rate, right? And so uh, it's kind of fascinating to think about that as, you know, as just like a new type of medicine, really. Uh, Kind of the pacemaker is the first example of a device that we can, electronic device that we can actually put into the body and actually solve a medical problem. And uh, and generally that's what the field of electronics is excited about. We're excited about using these devices uh, to kind of uh, give us new approaches to study and also to treat these diseases. What are the uh, diseases
1: you're looking to focus on or the type of devices you're looking to work with?
2: Yeah. So absolutely. So since the pacemaker, there's been a, there's been an you know, incredible number of electronic uh, devices that have come out. Uh, examples would be a cochlear implant. That's a device that can restore hearing. Uh, they are pill cams, it's essentially, um, a little cameras that you can swallow that you can use to study the stomach and the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, and so uh, so these are all kind of general examples of electronic devices. So in my group, uh, we're working more on the uh, technologies behind these devices. We're interested in uh, a lot on the wireless side. Uh, so my PhD was on wireless power transfer. Uh, we were studying how to, uh, for all these devices, one of the major challenges is that they you know, they all run on batteries, and those don't last forever. And so, uh, so we're interested in looking at ways to send energy into the body. So this is kind of a way to increase our the ability of our technologies to kind of access different parts of your body. Uh, and so, um, so, uh, so we generally uh, in in my group we work on kind of the technology behind these devices, and we also work on kind of building devices for uh, different applications. Uh, and so, uh, generally, the kind of the story behind that is. Uh, we're interested in kind of uh, improving the way that these devices can uh, target our body. So you think about how like a pacemaker, wh- why that pacemaker works. Uh, it's kind of interesting to think about in terms of t- uh, precision in, in time and space. So if you think about, you know, the way your heart beats, uh, you know, I-, I can control it by putting a device into my body to kind of target that uh, very precisely in space. So I can put a device in that only affects the heart. And, you um, and also, I can time it. I can actually, you know, stimulate it every second, and that's not something you can traditionally do with, uh, you know, with kind of me- medical pills. Um, you know, just by swallowing drugs, I couldn't do that kind of thing. And so, we're interested in a lot in this idea of spatial-temporal precision. Uh, how can we put devices in your body that allow us to target, you know, these di- different uh, processes in your body uh, very precisely? And so to give you a more concrete example of that, uh, we've been working a lot on one example of uh, photodynamic therapy. Uh, so this is a way that we can um, use these uh, essentially devices to target drugs. Um, so we've been exploring this for use in cancer. Uh, so in cancer, one of the, um, you know, the, the traditional form of treatment is, would, would be chemotherapy, right? You take a drug that goes uh, throughout your body and that affects, uh, and there's many side effects associated with that drug, you know, kind of activating everywhere and so we're interested in kind of uh, using light as a way to target that um that drug can i turn on the drug only at the place where i want and not have it turn turn on elsewhere that means i could potentially kind of get the uh, therapeutic effects of chemotherapy without the side effects and so uh, we, so light is a very powerful way of doing this we can actually design drugs that are specially light activated and so um so uh, so we, we we've uh, essentially um you know Built these devices that can actually uh, deliver light into my our body. So, uh, so the, the the challenge with light, of course, is that um, it, light generally doesn't go very deep inside my body. Yet. I can't see through my body, for example. And so, uh, so that that's an example. I don't. Know, I mean, what does that mean? Why would you direct light inside the body? What would you hope it would accomplish? Yeah. So uh, the idea behind that was to use the light to specially turn on a drug at a particular location in, inside the body. Uh, So, so uh, the the contrast to that would be chemotherapy, right? Like a drug that goes everywhere in your body. Uh, And so, uh, so can we kind of uh, have a drug that circulates through your body, but only turns on at a specific time and a specific place. And that way, uh, for example, if I, uh, if I know where a tumor is uh, in the case of cancer, uh, then I can actually turn on the device right at that place where the tumor is and have it activate there and not have it uh, affect the rest of the body.
1: Right. You wouldn't want it to act systemically. Mm Mm-hmm. So what's an example of this? What would you want to turn on and how would you do it with light?
2: Yeah, uh, so a cancer drug, for example. Uh, so cancer drugs uh, you know, uh, uh, generally works by killing cells, right? And so uh, you obviously, it's essentially a, a poison, right? Uh, and so you want that poison to affect only the cancer cells and not the rest of your body. And so uh, in general, in chemotherapy, we try to target cells that are rapidly dividing, for examples, uh, but that, that, that still affects healthy cells uh, like hair. And so in generally uh, in chemotherapy, there are many horrible side effects associated with uh, you know, hair loss, nausea, and, and other processes. And so uh, the idea um, behind targeting you know, kind of these, uh, these targeted therapies is that I can have a, a way to turn on the drug just at the place where I want it and not, not elsewhere.
1: Yeah. I understand you wanted to turn it on at a certain spot, so it doesn't act systemically, but mechanistically, Mm -hmm. how would you do that with light?
2: Uh, Yeah. So it's, it's very simple. You just have to shine light of a particular wavelength uh, at the drug. So you you design a certain drug that absorbs a certain color of light. And as long as you're able to get that wavelength of light, that color of light into that place, uh, then you can kind of uh, turn on this drug to uh, start killing cells.
1: Has that been used? Have people been able to
2: do that before? With yeah, in fact, uh, in fact, uh, photodynamic therapy is already a clinical therapy and they use it. Uh, it's actually a first line treatment for uh, skin cancer. So uh, very often for skin cancer, you, you, you get a cream, for example, applied to where uh, the cancer cells are, and you put your hand under a lamp, and that would uh, kind of turn on those drugs, right only the place where you applied the cream, and uh, kind of kill those cancer cells without affecting the rest of your body. And the challenge with that, of course, is that um, we, we're only using it for skin cancer, uh, even though it works very well. Uh, why don't we use it for uh, kind of the deeper cancers that I might care about, you know, pancreatic cancer, brain cancer. Uh, so, uh, the, the challenge, of course, is light delivery. How do we actually get light into, you know, deep inside your brain, deep inside the pancreas? And uh, that's kind of where bioelectronics come in. We've been developing uh, essentially tiny light bulbs that you can turn on uh, inside the body uh, that it can kind of turn on these drugs.
1: You'd have them um, well, on the surface of a device and they would be activated remotely and they would shine a light for a period of time,
2: but you could be you know, once the device is implanted, then it can shine the light wherever it's needed? Yeah, so that's, that's exactly it. Uh, so once we have the device in place, uh, we can actually, you know, shine light into that location and, and only selectively target that location. Uh, so probably a bit, an important question is, that, uh, how, how do we, does it really make sense to put those devices in place? Uh, so really the key for us was to make this device really small. Uh, so these are not kind of, big pacemaker type devices that you might imagine. They're actually tiny, about two millimeter millimeter-sized devices. Uh, we could potentially slip them in just with a needle, uh, kind of uh, like a biopsy needle. And uh, and maybe even after surgery, after you've taken out the tumor, we could potentially leave these devices in place, just the little light bulbs. And, uh, and, and if the tumor ever comes back, I can actually continue to treat that location without doing any additional surgery.
1: Well, I mean, when you implant devices, they don't typically just sit there. They tend to provoke an immune response. They tend to grow things on their surfaces that might obscure an LED or something like that. I mean, so, um, you know, if it's needed at a later time, I mean, I understand you want to make them small, and that's great. But that's also a smaller surface area, again, for films and all that to accumulate.
2: Mm -hmm. So I think that is so that's an important question. Uh, Really, how do the how does the body respond to these devices or for a long time? Uh, Generally, what happens is a fibrosis will form around the device. Uh, Generally, the fibrosis is still somewhat transparent, so it will not completely block the light. And so that gives us uh, at least a a, a long window uh, to treat um, to kind of get the light delivered. And of course, a long
1: window, (laughs) What, what, what kind of time periods are you talking about?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, within, uh, within, uh, within our, our, our kind of the scope of our project, we've been focusing mostly on kind of animal studies and, uh, these are all treatments done within, uh, three to six months of, of the kind of, kind of the, the tumor time. Uh, I think it'd be interesting, uh, certainly, um, studying the long-term response in humans would be, uh, would be a, a, a kind of a, a place for future work, uh, but at least from the literature that people know about with these devices, I think um, within a, within within a year is certainly uh, certainly possible. Well, why not? If you, instead of just shining
1: a light, why one also try to put a, a camera literally inside tissue.
2: And have it monitor tissue for a long period yeah. of time. Is that possible? Right. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a fascinating idea. Of course, uh, the challenge is inside the body, it's very dark. Uh, so a camera traditionally wouldn't work. Uh, so we still need a light to kind of see what we're doing. Um, one of the challenges, of course, is uh, the, the tissue is very three dimensional. And so you, you need more than just a camera, which can just image the surface. You want to kind of, uh, you need some sort of like ultrasound, some sort of tomographic technique to kind of see kind of that three dimensional volume. Uh, But certainly, um, I think interesting would be to put kind of biochemical sensors that could maybe detect markers of cancer if it were to ever come back.
1: Maybe if you put a camera in the digestive tract, you know, it uh, it could see material coming and going if it stayed there in residence. So, you know, I don't know if you need to have a series of them, but it might be possible to do something like that.
2: Yeah. So it'd be interesting to ask what the equivalent for cancer would be. yeah, uh, I, th- I, uh, I think biomarker may be the simplest way to do it, uh, simply because uh, cancer cancer tends to release a lot of uh, you know certain markers that go into the surrounding space and and the bloodstream.
1: Yeah. Okay. I would think there'd be plenty of t- uh, places in the body that again we don't normally observe, but uh, you know they could be observed in this way over a period of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially if you want to emit light onto a surface, you want to target it. Um, well, I guess if the drug would be in the uh, surrounding tissue, you wouldn't need to target it 100% precisely. But if you're right. able to image the surface and see literally exactly where it needs to be applied, uh, that may make it even more effective by doing that.
2: Yeah, I, I so that that would be a fascinating idea. Uh, maybe, um, you know, uh, of course, with a single device, I think you asked a bit earlier, uh, what is the area we can cover? Uh, of course, that depends on the amount of light we can get out of the device the more light the deeper through the tissue can go Uh, but generally with these devices we're getting coverage of about uh, you know a centimeter or so and so uh, of course this is a kind of at the boundary of useful right now uh, because tumors can be quite large many centimeters Uh, so i think a a more important uh, development would be to uh, be able to put multiple of these devices in i can maybe scatter them through kind of where uh, where might suspect a tumor
1: or you put it in a place where there's a flow system in place so that the you know the device sees a lot more material than uh you know just a static area where it only sees a centimeter that maybe doesn't you know change very much over time
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah so one potential application of that would be for example uh circulating tumor cells right uh so it's exactly like flow um so one of the with cancer a challenge is metastasis of course The the tumor will shed cells that goes into the bloodstream, and those uh, end up somewhere else in the body and grow into a new tumor. And so uh, I think a lot of recent work has been done on actually trying to take out these circulating tumor cells to stop the tumor from growing. So we could potentially place these devices near the bloodstream uh, and had a way to detect where the the cell coming by was cancer or or a healthy cell. uh, That would be fascinating.
1: Okay where are you at uh in, in making these kind of devices you know have you gotten to a you know to make any prototypes yet or how far along are you
2: yeah so we've we've reached the uh so my group works a lot on the wireless technology to, but really the key to making these devices small is to just take out the battery uh, really because uh, you look at any medical device comer, clinical medical device today generally the largest part is the battery right and that, that's the part that runs out and um and just occupies the vast, vast majority of space. So the key for us was to uh, remove the battery. Uh, and so um, we, uh, instead of without a battery, we need still need a way to power this device. So we can put these essentially these tiny antennas onto these uh, devices that can pick up power that we transmit from the outside. And so uh, we've reached the state. So uh, my my, uh, my group regularly builds these de- builds these devices, and uh, we can test them in animals. So we've uh, demonstrated inside uh, um, inside a mouse that we can suppress a tumor over time. And also in large animal studies, uh, these are with pigs, uh, we've been able to show that we can turn on these devices uh, very deep inside, so uh, about six centimeters down, uh, for example, on the surface of the liver.
1: Okay. So after implantation, you can turn it on again at a at any level you want, pretty much, wherever it's implanted in the body?
2: Uh, yeah, so sex centimeters, uh, centimeters would be uh, quite uh, quite a bit for a human, so we could uh, potentially go um, maybe not quite anywhere yet. Of course, this depends on the size of the particular patient, uh, but uh, I think certainly enough to be useful um, for a lot of cases, uh, like liver cancer, for example, or brain cancer.
1: Hmm. Okay. Um, so I guess you'd need an array of these devices in order for this to work.
2: Yeah, I think uh, so far we've been testing single devices uh, we've been um, you know tra- uh, we've been with a single device we, we take out tumors that are about a centimeter in size uh, and so um going for array I think would be uh, would be would be the next step
1: well does the device permanently stay in there or would it be removed at some point where it's not, needed yeah. not?
2: so yeah that's a good question I think um, so far we've been envisioning just having the device stay in place uh, and uh, that could be useful because uh, one of the Main concerns for any cancer patient is recurrence, right? I don't know if the tumor will ever come back, and so having that device in place, it could be, uh, you know, I like to I like to call it a defibrillator for cancer. Uh, You know, for a lot of patients that are at risk of having heart attacks, they'll have a uh, basically basically a stimulator implanted into their heart, and it may not ever be used, but if you know they ever go to cardiac arrest, this device will automatically reset the heart, and so uh, this could be essentially something similar for cancer you need uh you said you took the batteries out
1: how do these uh, objects function
2: yeah yeah the way this works is with wireless power transfer uh, which is what one of the uh, one of the expertise in my group Uh, so essentially we have a wireless transmitter that's kind of like a patch that sits on the outside and that sends uh, radio frequency energy into your body Uh, and that's done using uh, electromagnetic fields Uh, and of course we're Very important challenge with all that is to do so, uh, to to do that power transfer while maintaining very safe levels of exposure.
1: It sounds kind of tricky. I mean, the body is highly electrical. Why not try to uh, have the device use, uh, you know, nutrients in situ, glucose and, uh, you know, the nutrients that are being produced in the body anyway that all cells use?
2: right that's a, so that's a that's a wonderful question uh, so um, i think that uh, so so i, I think the, the general topic of using energy within your body is called energy harvesting and uh, and it, it is a it's a is an excellent idea and there's many great engineers working on it um i, I say I, if you look at the state of the art at the moment one of the challenges is just the amount of power you can collect it's just not not enough it's maybe 100 times less than what you need to uh, to light up an led at this point um and it's interesting to uh so one of the fundamental reasons for that is because we're um what we care about is electrical power right uh so within to light up led we need electrical power and the cells in your body are very good at kind of uh performing chemical transformations using sugar glucose and the energy inside inside your body but not very good at turning that into electricity and so um there's just uh there's not very many good ways currently to uh do that efficiently okay
1: um, so what do you expect is uh, ahead for the next year or so? What do you think is going to be possible? And then maybe the next five years or so, what do you think will be possible?
2: Yeah, um, I think, uh, so with uh, with this particular project, I think uh, certainly the, the, the next step is to really uh, look at some um, clinical, uh, what, what kind of uh, clinical needs for this kind of technology. Uh, when would it really make sense to put a device in your body, to, potentially suppress cancer. Um, I, I think, you know, fundamentally we are putting devices in your body, that's kind of a last resort kind of thing. If there's kind of very good treatments for that for a particular type of cancer already, then uh, maybe this would not make so much sense. Um, so kind of one direction we're looking in is to really uh, look at cancers that um, have, uh, w- that are very resistant to current forms of treatment and to see if this, this one might be able to make a difference. Uh, one, you know, very dramatic example of that would be glioblastoma. That is the, kind of the, the worst brain cancer. One of the worst cancers you can get. It's a type of brain cancer that's extremely aggressive. Uh, and so, um, generally, for these patients, there, uh, I think the me- median survival time is just 12 to 15 months from diagnosis. And we're uh, kind of, um, you know, and there, and this cancer is very resistant to uh, existing chemotherapy. Resisting, uh, it always regrows after surgery. So you, you can you can take it out, but it will come back. And so uh, we're wondering if you know this, these kind of devices could be left in place after surgery to kind of try to suppress that tumor growth, because uh, we know it's going to come
1: back. Well, how often would you need to use the device? Do you expect the various types of cancers? How often would you need to power it on? Or would you need to have it on continuously for
2: a while? Right. I think that's a really open question at the moment. Um, with our kind of animal studies, we've been uh, treating about once a week. Uh, so it's kind of a Kind of a regimen, so you can come in, uh, have the drug injected, uh, wait for that to circulate, uh, and then we turn on the device for about 15 minutes. So that's kind of the protocol we've been using. Uh, but I think it's an open question of whether or not continuous could be more effective, or um, or or this is this is enough.
1: Well, uh, yeah. Again, if it doesn't need to be powered on very often, that makes the power requirements a lot easier. You know, they possibly could yeah. be stored up over time over a week or two or a month and you may be able to get plenty of power even if you're only getting a tiny bit at a time if you had some capacitance or storage then maybe okay. you, you would be able to use molecules and uh just slowly build it up build up the charge and then use it and build it up and use it
2: yeah i, I think that's uh that's a that's an excellent point um whether or not we can um uh, so so uh, I think that certainly works with the advantage of wireless power transfer. Uh, if you only need to turn on the device for short durations of time, I could just, you know, kind of sit down, hold the transmitter over me. Uh, that would, would be in contrast to something like a pacemaker, where, you know, you'd always have to be wearing the transmitter on the outside, which I think doesn't make very much sense. Um, but, uh, but certainly that also opens some opportunities for energy harvesting if you're able to uh, store that over time. Uh, but I, I think... Uh, I think uh the, the energy storage remains a bit of a challenge, right? Even with uh supercapacitors, you know, they, they are leaky over time. And so you 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 have to outpace that leakiness.
1: Yeah, it's just an idea to try it, you know. I don't know if uh again if it would work at all or if you guys have looked into that, but I guess it's just a thought.
2: hmm Yeah.
1: Okay. Well very good. What's the uh what's the best way for people to find out more and uh maybe get in contact if you'd like to speak to anyone? Uh
2: yeah, I think um so my my I my website is of course uh uh Probably the easiest way. So I think you can see all, all the kind of the latest work from my group there and uh, my emails there. And I think that I will, yeah, welcome for anyone to contact me on that. And what's the website? What's the best one? Oh, uh, so. Um, yeah, sorry. So, uh, my, my website is a bit complicated. The URL is very complicated. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. But maybe uh, I think if you just uh, quickly uh, Google, you know, my name, John Ho uh, at at NUS, that should be the first thing that comes up.
1: Okay. Very good. Well, John, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. uh, It's been a pleasure to talk to you.
0: You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.